Okay. Let's uh, let's go to the threshing floor. <laughs> Do you remember that uh, Ruth is uh, on her way, sent by Naomi. Boaz is there, and uh, this is uh, this is that strange bit about the feet and all that sort of stuff. I guess if you were Ruth, that uh, at this point that you're going to meet this guy, and this guy could possibly be and you hoped could be uh, your husband-to-be, you would be churning with all sorts of emotions and excitement. And I don't think those are bad things. I think we need to cultivate that. I just want to tell you a story about my wife, if I may, and then I'll move on. Um, I was away last weekend and uh, came back about 10 o'clock on Saturday it was extraordinary as I pulled in the, pulled in the um, drive, uh, front door opened. It's late at night, front door opened. There was Kelly, came out. And she said to me these words, she said, I have been up in the back bedroom looking out for you to come round the island. And when you came round the island, I ran downstairs to the window. Now, let me ask you this. Did you think I appreciated that? Yeah, of course I did. And I, you know, don't take each other, you know, I think there's a lovely sort of sense, you know, he or she will be back home in five minutes. You know, it's got, you know, they're, they're coming home. No. It's not, I'm here, love. I think we can cultivate that, you know. I think we really can cultivate that. And I think it's something, I mean, for me, uh, it's worth, it was just an invaluable, I couldn't measure that moment. But it's midnight on the threshing floor and the air's cooling and uh, Ruth finds Boaz asleep and she uncovers his feet and lies down. There was a deliberate attempt to attract his attention. Now, if you are courting, sometimes... You've got to make your feelings known to the other person. You do have to say. I mean, I, the times that we've done this with young people and they've, and they've said, well, you know, well, we've been going out for 15 and a half years and we said, well, you know, have you, have you said to the other person that you love her? No. Well, come on. You know, and I think sometimes we, we need to make our feelings known. And I think even in marriage, we need to make our feelings known. It's something that we, we, keep on, we, we must keep on doing. It moves the relationship on, and it moves their relationship. So don't just expect to go out and not talk to them about what you are feeling in regard to the relationship. Part of the going out, if it's preparation for marriage, should be talking about what you are feeling, both of you, about where this will go. So, and in the marriage, um, it's worth saying this. It's okay to deliberately entice your husband or your wife every now and again. It's what Boaz did. Sorry, Ruth did. Ruth uncovered his feet deliberately, knowing that he would wake. And just so that you can spice it up every now and again, don't make it predictable. It's okay to come and entice your wife or your husband to do something that is suddenly a surprise that entices them and draws attention to them. Let me ask you that. When was the last time you enticed your wife or your husband? 
Tomorrow you're all saying no. But there we go. <laughs> it's worth, it's worth, it needs that sort of thing. And it all becomes a little bit mundane. Come on, uncover his feet every now and again so that, so that you can have the time of your life. Boaz wakes and he says the unexpected things. He says, who are you? So she says, disappointingly, Ruth, your servant. But we lose the tone in the English because the Hebrew suggests three things. It suggests that what she and he are talking about is suggests tenderness, it's, it, it expresses warmth, but it also expresses availability. So in the courtship, she, they're, they're both expressing who are you, we could move this on a little bit. And it's, if we're courting those, we need to be talking in those terms, of, in those sort of terms. Also, it's worth saying in the marriage every now and again that we are available. You don't have to watch a period drama every night. <laughs> there are other things that you can do. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. But sometimes you have to express or make it clear that you are available. Because sometimes it's just difficult to read us men. And particularly when the football's on and Cardiff's are playing tonight. It is difficult. And it's worth making sure that each other know that we are available. Let's deal with two things. In courtship at some point you have to demonstrate where you want the relationship to go. And if you remember that the purpose of dating is marriage... And in marriage, please don't let the tenderness and the warmth and the availability go. And sometimes, guys, you can say that and do that without sex. Sex is not a reward. Sex is a gift from God. And sometimes you can think, well, if I stroke her feet for two and a half hours, I might get a little bit. Sex is not a reward. It is okay, you can hear this now ladies, you're all writing this down. It is okay to express tenderness and warmth and leave it just as that. And sometimes guys, that's all that you need to do. She says, spread your wings over your servant since you are a kinsman redeemer. This was highly evocative and highly symbolic. In Arab culture, you probably heard me say this on Sunday, by, uh, you take a wife by throwing your garment over her. It's also symbolically, please protect me. But this, but, but Boaz would be, would he be offended with her forwardness? No, he would not. He was not, because he was a guy that wanted the relationship to move on. So you have to talk, we have to, if we're dating, talk about those sort of things. And he says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. Uh, This kindness is greater uh, than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger man, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. So here again is the desire for the Lord uh, to, to bless her. But here's an interesting thing that he has noticed that she is not impressed by the young men, the rich men in the village. 
and he's noted that she's noble. And it is attractive. It is an attractive quality to demonstrate faithfulness. If we follow the world's pattern and we look at body image and just on the exterior, we will build on a very shaky foundation. Actually, whereas body image led us, it actually in the last few years has led us to anorexia and bulimia and the consequences of that has been suicide. You find girls of eight and ten that are body obsessed. I was amazed actually and found it extremely frightening how a 12-year-old girl in, or girls in our hotel can look in an evening 18, 19 and 20 and then go out clubbing with people of that age. And I was disturbed because the disturbing thing is that you might get an 18-year-old guy that actually thinks that that girl is 18. And you know she's with her mum and dad round, round the corner. You just know. And I, I, I just have to say, I, I was worried but also, we'll come back to this in regard to children. What are the parents doing? What are the parents doing? And uh, we need to be responsible for our children. But having said that, we should be physically attracted to one another. We've, told, we've said that. But we've, we also need to note that other qualities are important in the marriage, like tenderness heart, like dignity. And remember that that we were attracted to Jesus who actually had no beauty in him. We were attracted, we were drawn to him. We were drawn to him by what he said and what he did. And Callie and I have had to deal with, again, all sorts of marriages over the years. And one of the issues has actually been, you know, complaints. People come and complain about the other person. I know you're sitting there, Andy, but sort of like you coming to me and complaining about Angie or Angie coming to me and complaining about... And, you know, often what has happened is that they can't... They've lost the ability to see any good in the person whatsoever. And actually, it's unbiblical because if you've got a complaint against another person, what does the Bible say? You go and speak to the person. In fact, you shouldn't really come and see me about the other person, Andy. Not that you ever have. But it's true. I mean, people think, it's quite true, that people think that what they can do is that I can fix their marriage. I can't fix your marriage. Only you can fix your marriage. So they come and sort of say, Nigel, you know, diddle 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 And sometimes the other person comes and goes, diddle 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 As if I can do anything about it. And say, well, I'll come and sleep with you for a week then. I'll sleep in the middle, you sleep there, and I'll come and eat with you. I can't do anything. Actually, no, the fixer of marriages is you. But what has happened in that marriage when it has got to that stage? What has happened is that you have forgotten the good in the other person. You've forgotten. You've forgotten what attracted you, what they were like, what they said, and all that sort of stuff. You've forgotten what you've fallen in love with. And sometimes the answer is, is go back to basics. Just go back. And go back and look again and see why you fell. And ask God to restore those things to you. Having said that, it looks like it's all going to go wrong. 
Because suddenly, when the romance is going to happen, we find out that there's another kinsman redeemer. And that Boaz has to go and sort it out with him. And the context of this is, for Ruth and Boaz, there's a huge amount of personal wishes, hopes and emotions. But I want you to note that Boaz says, okay, I will deal with it. And what happens when things get tough in a relationship and the things appear to be going wrong? That's where the headship should come into play. It is the man's responsibility to steady the ship. It's just my experience, but I've noticed sometimes that fathers don't, sorry, that husbands don't steady the ship, that wives do, and that fathers don't, that mothers do. And actually, if we're ahead, we steady the ship. It's our, responsi- it's our responsibility. Now, I'm not saying that the wives and the mothers haven't done an admirable job. I'm actually saying that the, the husbands and the dads have abdicated their responsibility. Recently, we've had a very public splitting up that's been quite close to us, that involved grown-up children. And basically, the argument of the man in it is this. I did nothing wrong. It was her. That was it. And in different ways, we've tried to say to counsel him and sort of say to him, actually, the relationship is your fault. And he said, no, you know, it's your... If the ship is unsteady, you steady it. If that ship needs some time, you put some time into it. This, you steer it. You steer the ship. And uh, unfortunately, it's not led to that. Let me read you something from C.S. Lewis' uh, book, The Four Loves, which he wrote in 1960, I think. You know the quote? It's where in from Ephesians 5:25, The husband is the head of the wife, just insofar as that he is to her what Christ is to the church. He is to love her as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. This is what C.S. Lewis Lewis says. Headship, then, is most fully embodied, not in the husband we should all wish, uh, but in him whose marriage is most like a crucifixion, whose wife receives most and gives least, is most unworthy of him, is in her own mere nature least lovable, for the church has no beauty but what the bridegroom, broom, bridegroom, bridegroom gives her. He does not find, but he makes her lovely. This marriage is at our cost. This marriage is at our cost. So we move to the morning, and Boaz says this. He says, let it... Be not known that the woman came to the threshing floor. He's a man of honour. He's protecting the integrity of and reputation of Ruth. I know this is a little aside, but I served my apprenticeship in a factory in Darliston. Uh, There were some interesting guys in the factory in Darliston, uh, mainly um, guys who would talk about their wives. The, The average term was the old bag, or old woman, or occasionally she was termed as the old slag. 
And that was why I spent most of my time where men talked about their wives like this. You may not use this sort of language, but I want to ask you, do you speak well of God's gift to you? Boaz said this, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. When, when you are away from your marriage setting, how do you talk about your other, your partner? How do you talk about God's gift to you? How do you think of that person? You know, one of the things that you could do is pray together and thank each other together for each other. And one of the responsibilities is that in marriage we will promise to protect the integrity of the other and maintain the relationship. The, the relationship begins to break down when you talk bad of the other person. So off goes Ruth, Boaz, sorry, to redeem Ruth. We know that there was another redeemer who could have taken Ruth as his wife, but Boaz has fallen in love with Ruth and he does everything that he can to secure his bride. Remember when you did everything that it, can to, that it, could to, it took to win your wife? Do you remember that? This is your daily practice. Remember what you did and when you did everything that it took to win your husband? This, is now, this should be a daily practice. Again, a little story from me. I used to finish work in Uckfield at 4.30. I then drove the car from Uckfield to Lewis, which was 20 minutes, from, um, back home. I got in, I showered, I did put on my gallons of Brute. I changed myself. I caught the train um, to London uh, to see Cully for a few hours and I caught the last train out usually with drunks on the train just for a few hours together we just let's just talk about it are you doing everything that it takes or are you doing the minimum required if the cross sets us an example of what is required, let's look at the cross again. Unless we think in terms of sacrifice and lack of self and no expectation of rewards, we will actually struggle. The essence of Christianity is not what I get, it is what I give. And remember that biblical love means sacrifice. And that doesn't mean that he needs to love me more at the moment. It means that we each have a responsibility to sacrifice to each other. How's your sacrifice going? What have you given up lately for the other person? Well, we're there. Boaz and Ruth marry. <laughs> Terrible. Well, they thought it was good. Boaz and Ruth, it says that Boaz took Ruth as his wife. The Hebrew is this. It says that Boaz led Ruth from the home of Naomi to his home. The idea is that everything that has been done in the home of Naomi, that's eaten, slept, laughed, lived, everything has changed venue. Everything at this point was absolutely brand new. 
Absolutely brand new. New place, new husband, all that sort of stuff. Okay, this is actually quite lost on today's society where nothing is new except the wedding celebration. It even occurs sometimes in Christian circles where everything is new bar sex. Sorry, where everything is experienced bar sex. And what I want to suggest is that as a biblical church, we need to recover leaving and cleaving in regard to relationships. What do I mean by that? Because sometimes that comes up in the, in the, in the wedding service. Let me try and explain it. Genesis 2 verse 18, It's not good that a man should be alone. I will make a helpmeet for him. Somebody else. Genesis 2, therefore, 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh and they were both naked and the man and his wife were not ashamed. Now you find these verses reiterated in the Old Testament. Jesus quoted them to the Pharisees. He said to them, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. What that is called, those things are called, are leaving and cleaving. And what they do is they lay down a foundation for family life. They lay, they sort of, if you like, this is the foundation of what we build on. Okay? So, leaving and cleaving. It's, it's the foundation for marriage, it's the foundation for intimate, intimacy in marriage. And basically, without leaving and cleaving, we do create tensions that will occur later in the marriage. So let me try and give you an understanding of the concept of leaving. The word is azab. That's the Hebrew word. It means that you will leave, you will loose, you will forsaken, you loosen, you'll relinquish your prior position commitment and devotion previously given to your parents and the family home. It's not just the parents, it's the parents and the family home. So then, secondly, marriage requires therefore a releasing from the parents and Uncle Thingy. You don't, you're not being released from Jesus though. Into um, and then you move from that from that place and from that people to a new place and a new person. That's leaving and cleaving. And if we do not leave those relationships emotionally and and psychologically, we actually find it difficult to cleave to our spouse. So leave and cleave stresses the necessity of a radical change in one sort of preeminent loyalty. So I've moved my loyalty from one person to another place. I've moved my loyalty from, uh, from one person and a place to another person and a place. And the responsibility is on the husband now to, to, to hold that sort of thing. And God designed... Um, marriage to operate in this way. Um, children are added to that, for instance. That's the, that's the sort of thing. So, so what can we say? What happens with that sort of thing is that what has happened over the years is that those sort of things have just got completely fogged. 
in, in the modern day life, leaving and cleaving is something now that doesn't exist. So, what can happen is that you can, there will be situations where individuals leave home but you are not married. Technically, they're still under the covering of the, of the parents. What's important in leaving and cleaving, if you move out of your home into an, another home because of job, work, or that sort of stuff, is actually what, the way that that home functions. That home does not need, should not function biblically as the marital home. That's what happens when you get married. It should function differently. Here's what one commentator said about this. He said, how do you know about whether you are, you are, you are mixed up in leaving and cleaving? Here's what he said. Don't wash his shirts and you don't wash her blouses. Because what can happen is that what we do is that we, we have leaving and cleaving now as I've left the parents' home and now I have sex. And that's not what God did. He designed the excitement of new from day one. Now, all of us have gone through different stages of difficulty with that one because we live in the modern... So and I want to suggest as a church, can you imagine the restoration of that? Can you imagine the... the because what happens now is that we get married and basically we now sleep together. And there is something about leaving and cleaving that everything, day one, is exciting. Do you know how exciting it was to, for Callie to wash my shirt for the first time? <laughs> but it is lost, isn't it? Nothing any longer is new. Nothing is lo longer is, is new. And sometimes... You know, we, we, it isn't just about, we've, we've lost that. We've sort of said, almost said like, we've sort of said, actually, marriage equals sex. And it can't do, can it? Because what happens if you, as you get older, older have a problem with, with sexual intercourse? What that means then, if you have defined that at this point, when you get to that point and you can no longer have sex, which may happen to some of you younger guys... It means this. Oh, does that mean I'm no longer married? Do you see what that does? No, you are married because marriage is far more than just that. It's the building of something new that you, everything is new and you build on that sort of stuff. My brother says this and he says, I think that we should now say no instant homes. And I quite understand that because I come from the thing, I don't know whether some of you come from that, that when Callie and I married, we had nothing new. We had one of those twin tubs that you sat down, it moved down the street, <laughs> that had gone through the whole church. And that's what, not everything was absolutely new from day one. And there was something about that that we really do need to come. Because, you, do you know, I mean, well, I'm just going to be involved in my nephew's wedding. Who's got money. And he's a firefighter. He earns a packet. Massive amount of money. That sort of stuff. And he's bought his own house and that sort of stuff. And basically, they're just going to get that in there. And I think the, just the sad thing is just the excitement of everything new. But actually, it's a biblical... You move from this house and you move from those people 
and you move to the home of Boaz and everything is new and you build on that foundation and I'm not saying we are oh, blow me what are we going to do now I think that what we can do is try and recover it bit by bit really as we as we do it in the church so moving on then let's talk about sex Rachel you can go to the back of the room I won't look at you you don't look at me okay <clears throat> Because this is the most difficult thing, to be in the room when your dad's going to talk about sex. I promise not to mention mum, okay? <laughs> or any of mum's bits or anything like that, okay? Let's just clear that out first. I, I won't do it unless I sin. If I sin, I won't do it. If you want to put a bag on your head, please feel free and just cut the things. Okay, that's, we've embarrassed Rachel enough. Okay. That's, okay. <laughs> Well, actually, if you would, for your homework, if you'd like to read this, the, the book of Song of Solomon, you could divide the Song of Solomon up into two things. One is this, and I said that I wouldn't refer to another book, but here it is. Here's your homework. Uh, um, he makes love to her, and it's interesting. Find out how he does that. And actually, guys, most of it's talking. But she makes love to him. How does she do that? Ready? It's a strip tease, guys. <laughs> Getting back to the book. See, all the guys are going to go home now. Song of Solomon, three o'clock, they're going to wake the wife. I've read this! <laughs> Tomorrow! Okay, right. We can see in the Bible, and in this instance, that actually the Lord places sex in the context of marriage the ESV is very unfortunate. He des- she, they describe it like this. A appalling way of putting it. The ESV says, he went into her, which is just dreadful. Why did you put that like that in the Bible? The Hebrew actually is more descriptive in regard to this. The descriptive thing is this, is it's the idea of Boaz entering the bedchamber and making love to Ruth, having prepared himself. What is being described here is not just sex, it's one of atmosphere, time, preparation, thought. It also gives the idea that Ruth is also prepared, also ready, also waiting to receive Boaz. What does that show? It shows us that Christian lovemaking in marriage should have a high standard. Now I have to say this, I believe in sex because I like it. No, I I believe in sex, I believe that it should be taught in the church and it should be talked about in the church because it's it's become one of those things that has been taken away from the church, mainly because we've just not wanted to talk about it any longer. And because we've not talked about it any longer, the centre stage has become things like the internet, televisions, newspapers, magazines, which have taken centre place and given a wrong view and idea of sex. Now surely, if we restore the church, it also means a recovery of the subjects of, of, of such subjects like sex. So let's talk about it a bit further. 
Sex has been given to us from, by two, for two reasons. One, the Bible tells us to produce children. Secondly, pleasure. Pleasure. God wants us to enjoy this part of our marriage. And because it's from him to us with love, we should not abuse it or should not misuse it. So what does that mean? It means firstly that your body is not just for you. It's for the other person. And if you go look and you look back at Boaz and Ruth and the Hebrew description, what is described here is not five minutes of rumpy-pumpy on a Friday night. And I think that we need to do everything that we can to reject five minutes of rumpy-pumpy on a Friday night. I think we need to go back to thought. How am I going to make love to my wife, my husband? Planning. How will that be? Time. How long will it be? Well, at my age, not so... No, so how long will that be? Attention. What was the atmosphere that that will be in? But we, what we also see is that we see that both people had got an intention to please the other. That was the, that was the thing that was set out here. They were both well prepared, their room was well, well repaired, and their intention was to please each other. And we're not told anything beyond that sort of descriptive preamble. But what we're sure is that it's not sort of a bloke sort of just turning over and saying, hey, love, what about it? Or sort of, you know, women lying on their back and thinking of Wales, because we're in Wales, not England. <laughs> and it certainly seems that it wasn't just one person's initiative, oh, it's always him, because he's always, get your hand off me, that it was both people's initiative and responsibility. And I want to, I just believe that we can have, because it's, because it's God's design, great sex. Great sex. There is no reason why we can't. And I think not only can we have great sex, but we can actually really enjoy it because God wanted us to. And here's a simple thing. If you don't enjoy it, then please talk about it to each other because God wanted you to enjoy it. And sometimes it does mean that you have to say to your husband, please don't put the big toe in the mouth because I don't like that very much. But I do like this. And he goes, hey... We have to talk at that. I mean, sometimes we just think, God, I don't know whether my mum and dad were like your mum and dad, but my mum and dad were... um, They were old school, so everything was done under the big quilt, as it were, you know, that sort of stuff. But actually they were madly in love with one another, and I knew when they'd been... And I 
one of the things that made me secure in my relationship with my mum and dad is that although that I knew that it was my mum and dad and that they were having sex, and isn't that the most horrible thing that you can think of in the world, that actually underneath it, as for, the, for me, it made me so secure because I knew that they loved each other passionately. And I know it's the sort of, you know, the Rachel thing, you know, you know, if it comes on the telly, you know, and Rachel goes and makes coffee or whatever, that sort of stuff. But actually, it's broader than just you. It is broader than you. It's creating something of an environment. Now, I know Tim's thinking, oh, no, they're going to go back now. <laughs> can, Tim, can I suggest something on your behalf? And can I suggest something on, on this? Uh, when they get a bit older, you need to get rid of them. Okay? Because actually, it's not good to be in the next room. Okay? Get rid of them. Why? Because it says here, time, planning, and thought. Time, planning, and thought. Let me read some stuff by John Piper. Now, John Piper always comes at it from a strange angle. He, he, he does it under two titles. He said, sexuality is designed by God as a way to know God more fully. And I thought, what? When I first read this, I, I had to really get this into my head. He said, he said this. He said, God created human beings in his image. Male and female, he created them. With capacities for intense sexual pleasure. Let me just, just underline intense. Okay? L learn your craft and with a calling to commitment and in marriage with a, sorry with a commitment to calling in marriage and his goal uh, in creating human beings with personhood and passion was to make sure that there would be sexual language and sexual images that would point to the promises and pleasures of God's relationship to his people and our relationship to him. Ooh. Knowing God is designed by God as a way of guarding and guiding our sexuality. Not only do the misuses of our sexuality serve to conceal or distort the true knowledge of God in Christ, but it also works powerfully the other way around. The true knowledge of God in Christ serves to prevent the misuses of our sexuality. So on the one hand, sexuality is designed by God as a way to know Christ more fully. And on the other hand, knowing Christ is more, is more fully designed as a way of guarding and guiding our sexuality. In short, great sex in marriage helps you understand him and therefore is worship. Now you all want to go back and worship God. <laughs> It is, because what you are demonstrating is his passion for you. And you, in your experience of the, the, that's why it should be good. You, in your experience of intense delight, 
are experiencing what he feels about you. It doesn't, it doesn't go anywhere near thinking of England, does it? It should be so intense. You think, this is what God feels about me. So it is, in fact, worship. Okay, moving on. Children. The Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. The son was added to Boaz and Ruth. And marital tension will occur when the focus shifts from husband and wife to the child. One of the strange things that I found it very difficult, just mentioning this, is that I thought that my wife's body was for mine and suddenly it was attached to other people. I just found that rather strange. But it's true. And that and it, they can create a tension when the children come, particularly sometimes when there's breastfeeding and things like that. But we have to remember that the most important relationship in the home is still dad and mum. And it is wonderful to be given the privilege of children to care for, but the Bible is clear that, that the Bible says that we are adopted into his family and they therefore come into this family. We didn't join it and then change it because we were in it at all. No, we were adopted into his family. We didn't get adopted into his family and say, hey Lord, I've got 20 things that I think that I should do in regard to this. No, we joined his family and children join our family. Let me ask you some questions. They're interesting ones. They're not mine. Um, who do you talk about the most in your family? Second question, they're not mine, so you're all right, I'm not going to answer this. If I came to your home by looking around, which person would I be drawn to? Talking to people now with sort of children. Okay, back to Boaz and Ruth. We're left in no doubt with them. Uh, It says that uh, the giver of life was the Lord. We know this. Uh, in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before um, you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nation. Psalm 139, verse 13. You know these words. For you created me in my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. So we know that the Lord is the giver of life. And yet we know that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And there's a huge mystery in all of this in regard to children. We live in a fallen world. We live in the consequences of original sin, Adam's sin, which actually means that that our bodies are fallen And this is the environment in which our babies are born. And some of the tensions, even in churches, will be that there will be couples having babies. There will be couples losing babies. There will be couples unable to have babies. And couples surprised at having a baby. And we, as church... will have the very difficult thing of living 
where we have to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And it is one of the mysteries and tensions that you and I will live with. And it's just one of those things that I have to say as a pastor that I don't really have any answers to give. Except, except to say, church, this is the reality of it. We've got to do our best for every person that comes in that category. Now that doesn't mean that we have a church that only has babies. Because it's so difficult for the other ones. Because we're going to create a church down the road because that's the church of the people that can't have babies. It means that we need to talk openly about these sort of things. Pray for both, but understand that this is the tension in which we live in. And we need to be able to do our best for both. But if we have children, there is one principle that stays the same. And it is the most important thing that we are married to each other and not to the children. And sometimes what can happen when we have children is that we move our marriage allegiance from our husband or wife and we move them to our children. And biblically, children are added to us until they create a marriage of their own and create their own family. They are entrusted to us for a while. And I, I have known this, Callie and I have known this, that children or lack of children has actually um, wrecked many a marriage that we have been involved in. And I mean that, lack of children or even children. And my appeal would be simply this, God joined you together first. You are the most important relationship in that home. You are it. And if you want to breed something good for your children, breed an excellent marriage. Something that they can see and be demonstrated. Finally, and then we'll do some questions. Finally, the marriage of Boaz and Ruth uh, would prove itself not only the lifetime of the marriage, but generations leading to Jesus himself. Jesus said this, he said, What therefore God has joined together, remember this, let no man put asunder. Do you remember that in your marriage? And God intended marriage for life, or he intended marriage for the life of the one person. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm aware that we now live in a nation of horrendous statistics in regard to marriage. And other countries also have terrible statistics concerning the number of marriages that end in divorce. And there are a number of people that we now have to deal with that form second, third and even fourth relationships. And I'm increasingly persuaded that there is a deep, profound significance that we need to, yet to, to rediscover and that is the union of a husband and wife and the joy of one flesh. 
that we need to be a living parable of the relationship of Christ and his church. And what Jesus is saying here in these verses is that that no one should undo the one flesh. I don't think you should do that. But before we jump into the, well, what about this and what about that too quickly? We have to do that. Look, I'm going into this. My intentions are the same as God. I'm going into this for life. (coughs) Or the life of me. Or the life of the other person. It is no good going into this with a prenuptial agreement. Let me just say, prenuptial agreements are unbiblical because they set a precedence of this will not last. No, I'm in this. I'm in this with Callie till I or she dies. I or she dies. This is for life. And one reason it's for life is that we are a living demonstration of Christ and his church. To betray each other is actually to demonstrate that Jesus could or will do betray his church. And another reason is that we see that marriage is not just that I fell in love, but that God joined me. And that is something of a, of something of a miracle, that God would do this. I am a living miracle. A third and connected reason was that I believe in faithfulness as a reflection of the character of God. And I believe faithfulness is a most extraordinarily attractive quality. How do you feel knowing that God is faithful? The answer to that is secure. Secure. Because you know that when you balls it up, that he's faithful. So it keeps you, it keeps you very secure. And I think that demonstrates in all sorts of, I often hear of men and women who jeopardise their faithfulness. They play with it. They become faithful to work. Or a hobby. Some people become faithful to pornography or building not quite affairs but unhealthy relationships. You can actually be unfaithful by just not putting the effort into the marriage that you did and taking it for granted. And in doing so, what you do is you say, God didn't know what he was doing when he joined us together. Why not just look at, for the ones that are married, why not just look at each other for a second? I won't look at you. Why not look at your wife or your husband if they're there? If you're here and you know that your partner's not here and you are married, why not just close your eyes? And just picture your husband or your wife. You are looking at the provision of God. (laughs) You are looking at the provision of God. You are looking at God's decision for you. To teach you about you. So that you could become much better than you are right now. 
understand this as you look at each other. Glory in the greatness of his calling. He gave you someone. You deserved nothing. But God gave you this one. You deserve nothing. You did not earn this person. You didn't pay for them. You might think you are. God gave them to you. And to be married means that we have, for a short while, been chosen to live in this street and work amongst these people so that we can show the faithfulness of Jesus and his church. That when people meet you, you will show them Jesus. He will and did scan the face of this earth for you, pair. Scan the face of this earth. Some of you from different nations, some of you from... How on earth did you meet? Callie and I lived for many years in the same town and didn't know each other. And then God said, these two will do it. I will be with them and they will, eat, they will enjoy each other and others will see them and find me. Finally, look at your partner. Isn't it a miracle, really, that they put up with you? Isn't it a miracle? It does not work, does it, without God? When you're honest, look at it. It, it, You are, this is the equivalent of Lazarus, Jesus rising from the dead, seas parting, ravens providing food. Look at it. You are a living, breathing miracle of God. How on earth have you got this far? The Lord. How will you get further? The Lord. Okay, questions. Do you want to turn this off, Phil?